Lord God in heaven, thank you so much that uh, you have watched over us through this week. We pray for our friends, uh, Hal and Lori and their family, and that you would continue to comfort them and bless them as they uh, grieve Norma's passing. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you'd be with their, their family that heard the gospel this week, that any of who are not believers would come to faith in Christ. Lord, we pray that um, you would also be with those uh, we know uh, from friends and family who are in need. Uh, who are struggling, who are physically ailing. Um, we ask you, Lord, that you'd be their comfort. Bless us, Lord, as we jump into Psalm 9 and help us. May we be blessed by this and enriched and strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Somebody gave me a snazzy, cool pointer mouse. Boom. It didn't work. Here we go. There we go. Okay. So we're going to be in Psalm 9, so if you want to turn there, we're going to read it in just a minute. Psalm 9. I just heard a click. Let me turn this thing still. Okay. All right. So hopefully you can get where you can see the, the slides and everything. So let me give you the historical, some historical details about Psalm 9. We'll look at the inscription in just a moment, but Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 have historically been considered one psalm. In fact, uh, outside of the Hebrew Bible, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, it is listed as one psalm. And in the Latin Vulgate, um, so you will often run across that. If you've ever picked up a Catholic Bible and open it to the Psalms. Have you noticed that the numbering goes off in the Psalms in the Catholic Bible or even a Greek Orthodox Bible? It starts to go off. The reason why is because in their Bible, Psalm 9, Psalm 10 are one Psalm. So that then takes the numbering off by one. Okay? Uh, there's reasons for thinking it's possible that Psalm 9 and 10 were one Psalm. Uh, in a light way... Uh, there's an acrostic pattern. You know what an acrostic is? Anybody know what an acrostic is? Alright, there's an acrostic pattern from Psalm 9 through Psalm 10. Okay, it's not a complete one. I mean, there's some gaps here and there. But Psalm 9 and 10 seem to follow... Uh, Psalm 10 seems to go on with the acrostic that started in Psalm 9. There's also some repeated refrains and thoughts in Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 that go together. So it's possible that it was one time one psalm and then at some point it was pulled apart. That's not unusual. If you look, go back and look at uh, David's song that he writes in 2 Samuel 22, that long song. Can somebody close that door, Oral? Could you close that door, please? Uh, if you look at David's song in, song, in uh, 2 Samuel 22, you will notice if you pay attention, if you've got good cross-references, that song is actually a conglomeration of about two to three portions of psalms. Right? So it was often, sometimes they would interject or weave them together and it might come up that way. So anyways, just a little historical note, but we're going to keep it as Psalm 9 today and then Psalm 10 next week. and make it easier. Yes, sir? So 22nd. And what we know is the 22nd Psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They know is the 21st. So at this point, from Psalm, uh, uh, yeah, from Psalm 9 and 10, from that point on, it's off. Okay? And so sometimes if you get a commentary on the Psalms, you'll notice after Psalm 9, you'll start noticing they put both numbers up there. Just letting you know, on the Catholic Bible, it's this number. On the Protestant Bible, it's that number. The reason why the Protestants went back to dividing Psalm 9 and 10, by the way, is because we went to the Hebrew instead of the Greek Septuagint. Okay? It's really important. It was really important the Reformation, ad fontes, to the sources. We went to the Hebrew and then started renumbering the Psalms based on the Hebrew text. So that's why it went, we went back out to divide Psalm 9 and 10. Sorry for the boring historical details, but I find it fascinating, and I hope at least two of you do. So, all right. All right, so I'm going to read Psalm 9, and I want you to look for overarching themes, repeated concepts, uh, some kind of structure. There is a structure in Psalm 9, and then in, uh, if, you, um, if you've got a piece of paper, you might want to just jot those down as we go through. 
because we're going to actually, I'm going to actually ask you to tell me what you saw, okay, or what you heard. So here we are, Psalm 9, let's read this. To the choir master, according to Muth Labin, a psalm of David, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know Your name put their trust in You. For You, O Yahweh, or You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples His deeds. For He avenges blood. For He who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit they they made. In the net they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made Himself known to His ex- uh, and He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their hands. Hagayon, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Okay, so as we read through the psalm, um, you see any overarching, overarching themes, repeated concepts, structure, are you seeing in Psalm 9? Anybody hear any repeats? Yeah? Yep, 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 definitely. Moose? Yep. Yeah. It's interesting, the first four verse, or first two verses, I will, I will, I will, I will, and then verse uh, three and four, they have, they have, they have, they have, they have, they have. I mean, it was five of those. And then it just keeps on. So you see this all the way. In the first part, specifically, you see it. Okay? All right, what else did you notice? Are there any other repeats? It doesn't have to be uh, literal repeats of phrases, but maybe concepts even. Any repeats? Yeah. Yeah, steadfast of the Lord in spite of all that's going on for His people. Okay, what else? Yes. In fact, it's interesting, if you look back at verse 3, 4... And then drop down to 5, 6. I'm sorry, if you look at verse 5 and 6, the passing away of the evil, right? They're withering away, but then you get to verse 7 and 8, and yet God's throne of justice will endure forever, right? So the contrast. Yeah, and the wicked won't, right? Right, absolutely. What else do you notice? Anybody see any structure? There's a structure here, but anybody see the structure? Yeah, very good. And so do you see a shift after that from rehearsing what the Lord has done to maybe going in a different direction? Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I think this is the dividing line you're looking for. If you look down at verse 12 and then verse 13. So verse 12, he avenges the blood. He who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And then verse 13, what is verse 13? He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Then what is verse 13? The cry of the afflicted. There's the shift. Yeah, that's where the, sh- the psalm kind of snaps into a new mode. Very good, yeah. So you've got to see, seeing that structure helps. And then, so we're going to actually look at it in more detail. But there is a flow here. And I think it's important to remember, by the way, most often when you sing hymns, for example, uh, it's hard to actually drop a verse because very often there's a story, especially the older hymns, there's a story in the hymn. There's an actual structure and a flow to the hymn. I remember one time, as a funny joke aside, um, we had a family that was from a, had been at a different church, a different denomination for years and years and years and years. And then they came to our church. Well, I like to sing, and we like to sing as good Presbyterians, all the verses of all the hymns, all the time, boom, right? All 27 verses. Well, it's a joke. And so this couple, and in, fact, in fact, I think, Cindy, we were in Midland. This couple uh, came for a few weeks and all of a sudden they went, well, I've never sung all the verses of these hymns. But there's a story here. Why are we dropping verses, right? So sometimes you have to, just for various reasons. But very often it's really beautiful. Um, and that's the way it is with the Psalms. We like to go into the Psalms sometimes and just pick out a section but you've got to always go back and say where does this fit into the flow and the reasoning of that psalm okay and then that actually adds substance to the verses maybe that highlight that you highlight that you highlight okay good very good so um no 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 oh i had this thing upside down yes yes so I would say the psalm, in just a nutshell, is God enthroned. That's the theme of the psalm. And it breaks down into two parts. The first part, verses 1 through 12, is description and doxology. And then the second part is plea, proclamation, plea. That's verses 13 through 20. Those are my two points. And I'm sticking with them. Alright? So it's, first part, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12, description and doxology. And then the second part is plea, proclamation, plea. You try to say that three times fast. All right, so the description of doxology. Just in verses 1 through 12, how many stanzas? If your Bible is broken up this way, which is really helpful, um, how many stanzas do you see in verses 1 through 12? Yeah, should be about seven. Okay, very good. So that, that kind of helps you as you see those stanzas. I appreciate the translators that try to put them this way because it helps us to realize these are little packets moving in a certain direction. And that just kind of helps us to think of developing thought. Oh, by the way, as you look at the inscription, when it says to the choir master, according to Muth Labin, the best we can translate Muth Labin is death of the sun. Okay? So it's a tune. The tune is Death of a Son. That's why they say it, according to Muth Labin. But that, but that tells you then, it's probably not a happy tune. You know what I mean? It's probably a somber tune in some ways. The death of a Son tune. Okay? Alright, so there's your seven stanzas. Make sure I have this in the right direction. And, boom. So, in verses 1 through 12, where is the description part? Okay. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. So verse four, I would add that verse three because it's also describing what happens to the enemies. Right? So the description begins in verse three and four. How far would you say the description goes? Huh? Through 10. Yeah, that's probably about right. Yeah, verses uh, 3 through 10 is the describing. He's describing the enemies. He's describing the faithfulness of God and the actions of God. So it's a very, very much a descriptive uh, part. And you, 
that's where you get that, uh, when you start hearing those repeats, they, they have, they have, they have, you, 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 you. I mean, you start picking up, oh, okay, all this really fits together. So what, so um, Pam has already mentioned part of it, but what is being described? And there's probably a couple things you can bring out, or more. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yep, his rule, his kingdom. Okay, what else? What else is being described? Yep, his judgment and justice. So, Ann, did you say something? Yeah, his righteous judgment. What else is being described? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so two sides of that. What's bad news for some is good news for others. Never forget that, right? And so their destruction is because he's establishing the throne of his righteousness. Right? Very good. So that's being described. What else would you say is being described? There's a couple other things here. Yeah, the wicked themselves are being described. What, what's be, how are they being described? What are different ways they're being described? Yeah, they forget God. They don't call on the name of the Lord, right? They distance themselves from Him. How else are they being described? They perish. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's part of it and the fact that they acted out in oppressing others, verse 9 and 10, right? Yes, right. And so, so it's not just the fact they avoid God, but as they acted out, that avoiding God or pushing God away is acted out in their oppressing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Very good. So that's, that gives you a sense of the descriptions going on here, what is, what is being described. Um, so who's at the center of the description? I mean, uh, yeah, that's a good way to ask that question. Who is at the center? What, who is it that is durable? Huh? Yeah, the Lord, right? They're passing away. They're failing. They're crumbling. They're, you know, they're, they're going away, but He's durable, right? So He's the center of the psalm, okay? Does that make sense? Everybody on board with that? Okay. Very good. All right, so then as you look at verses 1 through 12, look for the doxology. Where's the doxology? Huh? Verse 11. Yeah, 11 and 12 probably be the doxology. Is there any, is there any other doxology? What's a do, what does doxology mean? Anybody want to define that for us? Yeah, doxe is the Greek word for glory. Logos is a word of glory, a word of praise, doxology. So where's the word of praise in verses 1 through 12? Yeah, verse 1 and 2. Very good. So notice it's like bookends. Did you notice that? The first section is bookended. So I'm going to get into the grimy, gritty aspect of evil. But first I've got to praise God. And last I've got to praise God. Right? So it's like books, bookends, all these going to describe in the middle. So that's the doxology part. Very good. Um, yeah, I, already, I just gave it away. How's it employed? <laughs> but how else would you say the doxology is being employed as you look at just verses 1 through 12? What do I mean by employed, right? How is it being employed? How is it being engaged, the doxology? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. The other aspect, before he gets into the gritty and the grimy, he starts with doxology. And then when he's done... He brings up doxology. It's very similar to Psalm 73, and this happens often in the Psalms, and I think this is instructive for us. 
before the writer of Psalm 73, a priest of the sons of Korah, before he gets into the ghastly details of the prosperity of the wicked, he goes in a different direction than this psalm. He begins by saying, God, you are good to Israel. You're faithful. And I almost lost my faith. And then he talks about why, right? So he begins with praising God, which anchors him as he's about to go into the gritty details. Alan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's in, trying to engage them to join in also in worship, right? Yeah. Yeah. Good military style. Hoorah! Yes, very good. Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. Our Father who art in heaven, and then boom. Yeah, 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 very much so. So that's a good pattern. And just for us, as we think about praying, I mean, I hope we're listening. That's a good pattern. Usually when we're, when we're up to our eyeballs and worry and fear or whatever, we want to go right to it. We're good Americans. We want to get right to the point, right? Which is okay. But it's very instructive to start with who God is. And, you know, I'm going to give you thanks first and foremost. I'm going to praise you for who you are. I need to do that before I get into what I'm going through. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Good. All right. Yeah, in fact, we've just already started running into this. What is the, what is the value of, do, of, of the doxological? And we've already said, you know, just that. So it is a rehearsing of who God is, which we're often pretty quick to forget. Right? I mean, let's just be honest, right? So we're pretty quick to forget that, and so it's really good to anchor yourself in it. Okay. Uh, the other thing I would say, by the way, just as an outsided, it's not my notes, but that's okay. Think about the fact that David is really concerned. There's things going on. He's really concerned, but notice he took the time to write all this out. And because there's a structure, you know he didn't just throw it down stream of consciousness. He actually worked his way through it. All right. I think there's a value to that where we actually, we want to, if we pray with panic, it comes out all jumbled, right? But what about actually opening up a journal and just start listing out, starting with doxology and then moving into things, actually thinking through what we're actually saying and doing, the value of that. I think that, that uh, just in my experience alone, it actually helps clarify things. And sometimes, halfway through writing something, I go, oh, I'm part of the problem, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Which is great. It's a good moment when you can finally go, oh, I'm actually part of this problem. You know, so actually writing it out, which is what he's doing here, he's taking some thoughtfulness. None of this is extemporaneous. He's taking a lot of thoughtfulness to this, something he's very passionate about and he's very wrapped up into. Anyways, okay, so, yes. Yes, yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Very good. So as I like to say, throw your body into your begging and your posture into your praying, right? Because God made us body and soul. We're to be praying body and soul. That's one of the reasons why, for example, in worship, it's very fitting that at the time we come to confession of sin, what are we doing with our bodies as we do that? We're kneeling, right? And then when we read Scripture, somebody brought this up last week as we were looking at Tyndale, when we read Scripture, what, are ways, what do we do that actually shows our body is involved in the worship? Stand, out of respect, right? So it's very fitting and very appropriate, very biblical to do those things. That's a great point. Very good. All right. Um... So what's the connect? We already kind of drawn this out, but but there's a there is a connection between verse one and two and verse 12, 11 and twelve that we need to make, uh, and we've already kind of 
uh, Alan's actually hit on it a little bit. What's the connection between 1 and 2 and 11 and 12? Yeah? Okay. Yeah, he's, he's giving... Uh, right, he, he sings praise, verse 2, and then he tells everybody else to sing praise. Okay, what else? When you think about verse 1 and 2, the pronoun, and then when you get to verse 11 and 12, what's happening? Yes, I and you. So now he's, he's saying, I will do this, and then he's given all these reasons why, and then he says, now, what are you sitting there for? Get on here and join with me, right? That's the connection and the flow of what's going on in Psalm 9, verses 1 and 2. Okay, very good. Can you tell I enjoyed doing this psalm? Um, okay, I mean, I've already kind of hit this, but how does David take us from verse 1 and 2 to verse 11 and 12? And that is, and you can see it. We've already, like I said, we've already kind of talked about it. You can see it when he says, I'm going to do all these things. And then he gives us in verse 3 through uh, 10, he says, and here's all the reasons why. Right? That's how he's getting us to verse 11 and 12. Here's all the reasons why. And then he draws them in. Something like that happens in our worship. Again, in the call to worship. Right? In the call to worship, it's very often about who God is or what God has done and that we get to be invited in. That's part of what that call to worship is, is moving us kind of like with Psalm 9 from verses 1 and 2 to verse 11 and 12 where we're all engaged. We all go, oh, that's important. So that's, by the way, is my plug for why it's important to be in the sanctuary, ready for worship, before the call to worship... So you can jump in from the very beginning. There you go. And now, yes, and stay through the benediction because that's important too. Yes. Yes, right. Yep, absolutely. Be still my heart. Oh, awesome. Yes, very good. There's a sober-mindedness to this. Five bucks to Pam. I'd give you ten if you start, held up a copy and said, you can buy this one. So, so I want you to notice also that verse 11 and 12 actually seem to summarize verses 1 through 10. Here's, let me show you what I mean. So verse 11 sing praises to the Lord. That's how he begins this. I'm going to sing praise to the Lord, right? So he's, there's verse 1 and 2. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds, which is what's going on in uh, verse, um, specifically verse 7, the Lord sits enthroned forever, etc. And he's a stronghold. And then in verse 12, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. Well, that goes along with verse 9 and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken them. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Verse 11 and 12 really is a su- also a summarization of verses 1 through 10. By the way, verse 9 and 10 are often on my own prayers especially when you think about loved ones who are being abused, right, and oppressed. What a great comforting set of verses. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. In the midst of this affliction, run to Him. He will not fail you, right? And I've, I've not only handed that off to those in my family and others, but, but often use it in my prayers, okay? So keep verse 9 and 10 close to heart. So there's, uh, there's the first 12 verses. Um, before I go on, what questions or observations or clarifications? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yes, absolutely, right, right, right. When we get to verse 17, what Musa mentioned earlier, they forget God, and as uh, Aaron is saying, here's all this rehearsal of who God is, why not to forget Him, but the wicked show, they don't pay attention to any of that. They forget God, right? Very good. All right, this is, um, 
I recommend this commentary. If you're looking for a one-volume commentary, I recommend Africa Bible Commentary. And I'll give you two reasons why. Well, I'll give you one reason why. First off, no, it's not Reformed. So it's amazing when you read it and you go, you're a closet Calvinist. I can see it. Right? They may cringe if you say that. But also, I like reading outside of my context just a bit. And so these are all written uh, by uh, all the commentary from Genesis through Revelation written by Africans all over Africa. Um, and so sometimes it's really, in, it's really insightful. You're reading it and they're applying a passage and you go, man, I never would have thought of that. But that makes sense in your context. How does that work then in my context? It actually gives you a different perspective, okay? And I highly recommend that. And I'll, um, just as a side thought, when I was in a, in a particular sect, I won't mention any names, they only wanted you to read their stuff. And so it becomes this group thing. Well, I got into trouble because I'm honoring. I'm just going to tell you. And so I was like, you want me to read only our stuff? Uh, no. And so I would read outside of our stuff, which then raised questions for me to actually work through and think through. And when we finally left that sect, I just swore, I swore, I did, I literally swore to God I would never, ever, ever go back into only reading the our stuff. Okay? There is a value to going beyond that. Because sometimes some of us in the Reformed world can be wrong. I don't mention any names, but one of them would be me, right? It's always possible to be wrong, and so it's very helpful at times to read outside. So I would recommend, I recommend the Africa Bible Commentary, very conservative. Um, but here's what um, Cyril uh, Okorocha, who was the uh, Archbishop of the Anglican Church in Nigeria at the time he wrote this. Here's what he says about uh, Psalm 9, 1-12. We can thankfully tell of all his wonderful deeds in the past, However, to be able to do this, we need to think about ways in which the judgment of God is indeed seen in the past, both in biblical times and closer to the present. That was a good observation. Actually rehearsing not only God's actions in biblical past, you know, from the past in the Bible, but even looking back in world history and seeing God's hand and, and owning that again and saying, look at the things that you did, Lord, you know, and rehearsing those. Okay? I thought that was a good point. Alright, anything else in verses 1 through 12? Okay. Now we're going to move to verse 13 through 20, and this is plea, proclamation, and plea. So I want you to look at the book stanza. There's a stanza here, uh, bookend, as I call it, the bookend stanzas. I want you to look at verse 13 and 14, where now the afflicted is crying out. Verse 13 and 14. And then notice verses 19 and 20. So those are the bookends in this portion of Psalm 9. Okay, I always like to look for those things where you have a, a beginning and an ending that go together. Right. So here's the, the cry of the afflicted, and again the cry of the afflicted, verse 19 and 20. Okay. Um, the central stanza comes round to what? Now this is the middle part. This is verses 15 to 18. What is the central part of verse of this part of Psalm 9 come around to? Yeah, the judgment of the Lord, right? The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. Um, and yet... The needy will not always be forgotten. Hope the poor will not perish forever. Right? So coming back again to God's mercy and His justice and the fleetingness of those who are wicked. That's kind of the centerpiece here between two, two petitions, two cries of the afflicted. So look at the two cries of the afflicted and then think about this middle part. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh. See my affliction from those who... Hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of, of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I will rejoice in your salvation. Verse 19 20. Arise, O Yahweh, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. By the way, we've used verse 19 and 20 many times in our congregational prayer. If you'll listen for it ever so often, you'll hear it. Yes, please. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Yes. Right. Yep. Right, yes, no foxhole religion there. Right, yes. So you made a statement that's really important. He's he's talking to God. It was when we did the series on Job on Sunday evening, probably what three, four years ago. It was one of the things I pointed out. It's interesting. Job's three friends never talk to God. They talk about God. They talk at Job. Job's the only praying man in the whole book. And he never stops talking to God. Now, he has all kinds of questions, but he never stops talking to God. And that's, that's what happens to faith when it goes through trial. It never stops talking to God. Right? And you see that here in Psalm 9. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It's a relationship, very good. So that, so with those bookends, here's the two petitions. Then, when you get to that middle part, you realize, oh, okay, yes, that's right. This is who the wicked are. This is who the Lord is. Um, and so this is why you're asking, part of why you're asking for these things, verse 13, 14, verse 19, and 20. So, there you go. Um, And so when you look at verse 13 and 14, what is David pleading for? Hopefully you see the word afflicted in verse 13, and if you've got your Bible, you should circle that and then draw a line back up to verse 12. Do not forget the cry of the afflicted. That way you remember, here's the cry of the afflicted. What do you see David pleading for in verses 13 and 14? Mercy? Yes. Right. Right. But not just that, it's interesting. See my affliction. Sure, he's being chased down by his enemies, but it's interesting. He says, see my affliction. Yeah, recognize what I'm going through. I want you to look at me and look what's happening here. Okay? I think that's extremely important. I think a lot of people cry out. Part of the suffering that goes on is the fact they don't feel seen. And so very fittingly, David says, see me, see my affliction, right? Very fitting. See what's happening to me. I may not get justice anywhere else, but if you will see this and acknowledge it, then there's some hope for me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so that was the next question. So good. You, nice segue. Thank you. No, perfect. Explain the promised goal for his pleadings. What is, what is he promising? He's not bargaining with God. He has a purpose. He, he's, his, like his purpose is... Um, he has a purpose. He's just not bargaining with God. Look, if you do this, then I'll go do those things. He's saying, I, you know, do these things... And this is what I will do. For this reason, I will then go out and do these things, this praise. It's not necessarily a bargain, but it is an end goal that he's got in mind. And, what, and Alan's already mentioned it. It's the two that phrases in verse 14. That I may recount all your praises. Rescue me so that I can go tell everybody how you rescued me. Rescue me, help me, deliver me so that way I can, I can recount the goodness of the Lord that I have personally experienced in this affliction. Good Presbyterians, yes, awesome. That's exactly right. Okay, but I think that's important. Keep that in mind. He's he's explaining here. The uh, he's laying out the promised goal for his pleadings. Um, and so I ask us when when we are asking God for help, have you ever thought of pursuing a that I may aim that I may, Lord, I need your help in this situation but I, I ask for it so that I may be able to go tell someone or, or whatever the case is. But that, that, that I may part. Yes. 
yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes. I'm going to be, I want, I want to have the joy of telling other people what God did do for me. Right? That's great. So that's, think about that as you're praying. You know, just ponder the possibility. Is there a way, is there some aspect in which you want to be able to go tell others and then tell God? Say, Lord, help me with this because I want to tell people how you did this. How you actually rescued me or, or took care of this issue. I want to tell people. Okay? Good. So, how does David the king... Now, remember, this is the king of Israel. How does David the king describe himself and God's people? I have a reason for asking this question. Verse 18. How does David the king and God's people, how does he describe them? The needy and the poor. The poor and the needy. I just bring that up because in the Bible, poor and needy do not necessarily mean the financially impoverished. Yeah, there's a sense of the spiritual poor. There's also the fact that God's minority people, sound like a sermon series we're preaching through, are always, in a sense, God's minority people and therefore can become and often are targets and are often needy, no matter how financially well off they are. I think it's important because sometimes our liberal friends or, or others are always wanting to go to passages like this and say, see, God gives preferential treatment to the poor. Well, that, and then what they mean is the financially poor. Well, no, he doesn't. Actually, the Bible is very clear. God shows no partiality. I mean, from one end of the Bible to the other, God shows no, there's no preferential treatment because of my financial situation. If you want to talk about a preferential treatment, it's those who actually are near to him. And in a way, we really are the poor and the needy. Okay? Doesn't mean that we're the only ones. But I just think that's important for us to see that. So he's actually talking about himself and all the people of Israel. And he calls them the poor and the needy. Okay? Um, so then verse 19 and 20, what is David pleading for? This is why, if you look at those two verses, 1920, you'll know why we use this sometimes in our congregational prayers, usually when we're praying for our country and other nations. Mm-hmm. Right, put them in fear, O Lord, is that sense of actually wanting them to come to know Him, right? But if they will not, then judge them and bring them down. Right? That's the pattern, usually the imprecatory psalms in Scripture. Okay? Yes. Right, right. Right, right. And if you go back and you read verse 19 and 20 and then go back into verses 15 through 18, you realize uh, kind of the reasoning behind that petition because they're already sinking into the pit that they have made themselves. They've already shot off their own foot. They've already set their own trap and sprung it. And so, help them to know, don't let them prevail, and help them to know that they are just men. In other words, they will die. And in that recognition, that's why I did this at the funeral, at Norma's funeral. I went from Ecclesiastes 7, where Solomon talks about it's better to be in the house of mourning than in the the house of feasting because here's where you gain wisdom and you get life reoriented. You're kind of praying that even for God's enemies. They would, that they would realize they're just simply human and not God's. Which is, you know, great prayer. Because there's a lot of people who think they're God's. Okay? If they don't use that language, that's the way they act. Okay? Very good. Alright, so in short... Um, just summarizing Psalm 9, what is the king of, uh, of God's kingdom begging for? In short, what is the kingdom of God's kingdom begging for? In all of Psalm 9. Just summarizing. Yeah, justice. Not only for himself, but even for his people. Right? That's what a good king cares, should care about. Not just himself, but all of his people. Right? So now take that a step further. And how does this reflect the concerns of the king? 
You should always be thinking about Jesus, by the way, when you're coming through the Psalms. Here's the Messiah of Israel, King David. He was a Messiah. He was the anointed one. He's a picture of the Messiah, the anointed one. So how is Psalm 9 then, how does it reflect the concerns of the King, Jesus? When you think about Hebrew, I'm sorry, somebody will say something? Yeah, won't forget the poor, needy, won't forget his people. You think about Hebrews 7 when it talks about he intercedes for us. He ever lives to intercede for us, so he will save us to the uttermost. He's praying this on our behalf. Now this is not, I mean, in a sense, it's not a big deal in America. We're not being run down and burned at the stake. But man, it means a lot when you start thinking about our brothers and sisters in other countries who are being mowed down, Right? I mean, that's huge. Our Lord cares about what's happening to them, and this is His petition. Okay? And so, and it reflects His own sense of justice. So do you see anywhere in Scripture where Psalm 9 is fully worked out? The, God, the throne of God is fully established in justice and righteousness, and the wicked are brought down and completely defeated. Revelation. And who is it that is bringing it to fruition? The king, Jesus, on the white horse with a two-edged sword coming from his mouth, treading the winepress of the wrath of the fury of God Almighty. Right? You see Psalm 9 being worked out in its fullness there in Revelation. So our Lord cares about this. So as you think about Psalm 9, how does it encourage you regarding God's role in history and in the present world moment? He is sovereign. Huh? Yes, he rules over all. Very good. He cares about what's going on. Okay. Um, how might Psalm 9 be a huge soul lifter for someone whose home and family have been brutalized in Nigeria? It's going on right now. Or Sudan, that's going on right now. Or maybe even downtown Oklahoma City. Someone comes in, rapes, murders, and kills their kids or themselves or them or whatever. How would Psalm 9 be a soul lifter for them? Just think of verse 9 and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know their, your name will put, the, put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who, who, who need you. Right? You're speaking. Yes, 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 yeah, good, Moose. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, it's good, yeah. This is uh, Patrick Henry Reardon in his book, Christ and the Psalms, as he concludes his uh, study on Psalm 9. In this psalm, the judgment throne of God is the real and final arbiter before which all events in this world, especially the great moral and spiritual conflicts of man's history, are summoned with a view to their final assessment. Obviously a psalm about struggling with enemies, Psalm 9 has no doubts about the resolution of this struggle. Okay? So, uh, just wrapping up here, just three, uh, three questions, I think. Um, if I can get them up. There we go. So how does this psalm encourage you? It doesn't encourage you. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's a good. It's a good encourage. Yeah. It's a good. Yeah. Very much so. So, uh, well, it goes along with the next one. Why does the psalm give you hope? Um, what are some ways it teaches you to pray for yourself and for others? Yes. It gives grace to the humble. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. First Peter five, six, and seven. Janelle was quoting. That fits in very well. So, so how? Just one other thing. How else does it teach you to pray for yourself and for others? Oh yes. Yeah. 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 One of the things I enjoy was to pray with the uh, that I may part. Yes. Moose. Oh, yes. 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 Very good. All right. So that's it for Psalm 9. We'll pick up at Psalm 10 next week. Okay? All right. So you guys will be reading ahead this week for Psalm 10. Well, let's pray. Lord God, you are a stronghold for the oppressed. And you are a stronghold in the times of trouble. Those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. For that, Lord, we are so grateful. We pray that you'd be with us as we enter into the, the sanctuaries, we enter in to worship you, Lord, that doxology would be flowing from our hearts and from our lips. And we pray for any who may be needy or poor, or poor in our midst, who are struggling with various things, that, Lord, that they would know that they're not forgotten, that they would, that they would know that they are seen by you. And may that, Lord, give them strength. Bless us this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.